0: All right, go ahead and grab a seat. If you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. If you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. We're gonna be in Isaiah chapter 61. Believe it or not, um, this this time where I have to kind of yell at you to sit down and grab Bibles is actually my favorite time because I see conversation happening, and and one of the things we believe about church is it's not like a, a concert and a TED talk, right? Like like church is really meant to be this place where we build relationships and we get to know people and we hang out, uh, and so every time uh, I just watch us interacting, it's 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 a blessing to my soul. Um, and, and yet we're a people here at this church that are built not just on hanging out and being a social club, but but we're built on. On something that goes deeper. And, and, and I believe tonight we get to see a little bit of what that is. And so Isaiah 61 is where we'll be tonight. Uh, we've been working through the book of Isaiah. We'll do Isaiah again this week, and then next week we'll wrap up our series in the book of Isaiah. Um, and I hope tonight's an encouragement because really tonight's text, Isaiah 61, is going to take us not only all the way back to Isaiah, but it's going to take us all the way forward, hundreds of years to the ministry of Jesus. So So the book of Luke records it this way. Jesus is born Uh, And then Jesus grows up, and we know very little about Jesus growing up. It's remarkable. We have about one story from when he was 12 years old. That's really all we have about Jesus. And then we fast forward to Jesus in his 30s, and it immediately starts to pick up the pace. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. The heavens open up. A voice says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes down on him. Immediately from his baptism, he's cast out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. He fasts. He stands up against Satan. It's this beautiful and remarkable passage. And then here's what the gospels record, that immediately after Jesus is baptized and tested in the wilderness, he sprung into ministry, like ministry mode was on his mind. And the very first thing Jesus does, this is so fascinating, is not a miracle. He doesn't do some crazy miracle where he shows off and impresses everyone. He doesn't heal someone who's sick, he's going to do some great things. But the very first thing Jesus begins to do after his baptism to kick off his ministry is he begins to teach He teaches, and this is the ministry of Jesus. It is a teaching kind of ministry. The miracles and the wonderful, beautiful things he does are this amazing thing that authenticate his teaching, but teaching is what he does first and foremost. And I wanna read that to you here in Luke chapter four. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee, which was his hometown where where he grew up, in the power of the spirit, and news about him spread all through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. This is so cool. Um, at some point here, Calvary, uh, actually in 2024, is gonna take another trip to Israel. We're gonna have an opportunity to do that as a church. I know this summer we're, we're doing an Israel trip. Like there's Israel, where we have these opportunities to go to Israel. This exact synagogue it's talking about here, you can walk into it. Like you can go into this first century synagogue that Jesus was in. It says he goes into the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he goes in as was his custom. And it said, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Like in other words, they're like, here's the reading for today. It's Isaiah. And they hand it to him and he says, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So um, this doesn't seem scandalous to you, but this was actually a scandalous moment. Meaning that in the ancient Jewish custom, what they would do is they would say, today's reading is out of Isaiah, let's say Isaiah 6 or Isaiah 20. And they would hand the scroll to Jesus. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to a different place in the book of Isaiah. And everyone's stunned by it. He's like, thanks for the reading, but no thanks. It'd be like if we said, hey, sing that song new thing tonight. And Jacob was like, yeah, that's cool. But I'm gonna sing that old 90s one. I could sing of your love forever. And we're like, what? What?" Yeah, I mean, I'd be like, okay. Like Jacob thinks he's in charge here. That's what Jesus is doing. Why? Because he's in charge. And here's what he does. He goes to Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, he finds the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like in other words, Jesus goes, thanks so much for the scroll. I know what the reading is. I'm gonna go ahead and read this one today. And here's what it says in verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Like he's like, I'm done, right? He reads three verses and he's like, I'm out. And here's what it says. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him because he did the thing you weren't supposed to do. He broke the pattern. He broke the rules. Again, because Jesus is in charge, but they don't know he's in charge yet. And then he says something so cool. Verse 21, he began by saying to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like in other words, Jesus goes, When Isaiah wrote these words, eyes on me. It was about me. This is what Jesus does at the very beginning of his ministry. The very beginning of Jesus's ministry, he defines his entire ministry by the words he just read out of Isaiah 61. In other words, Jesus understands his entire ministry, his purpose, his life's mission by Isaiah chapter 61. In fact, so much so that he says that this scripture that you just read, you're watching it be fulfilled. I'm here. I'm the one who fulfills this scripture. Tonight, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this passage that Jesus read. We're gonna look at this passage that Jesus says, this defines my life, it defines my ministry, it defines my purpose. And we here at Calvary have this phrase. And this phrase is simple. We say that we wanna be a people who live and love like Jesus. Like we wanna be a people who look at Jesus, figure out how he lived and live like him. It's not just so we believe in Jesus or worship Jesus, but Jesus is our mentor, our rabbi. We're his protégés. Our job is to look and see. okay, Jesus did it this way, so we're gonna do it this way. And here's my contention tonight, that what Jesus had to say here, like what Jesus was all about in Isaiah chapter 61 was not just true for Jesus. It's true for anyone who wants to live and love like him. Like if you wanna understand how to live and love like Jesus, you gotta figure out what Jesus thought his mission was all about. And tonight we'll see that in Isaiah chapter 61. So we'll begin in verse one and walk through it verse by verse. It says this, "'The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me "'because the Lord has anointed me "'to proclaim good news to the poor.'" So Isaiah chapter 61 begins with the sovereign Lord. The Lord in the the Old Testament scripture was Yahweh, this one who created heaven and earth, the God who says, I am who I am. And he says, my spirit is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So I wanna talk about this word here that you'll see in yellow, this word, go back, go back, go back to this word anointed that Jesus is the anointed one. Here's what what we see, Um, this word anointed, you're gonna see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and this word anointed had a very specific meaning that everyone would have understood what it meant. To anoint someone was to identify them for a particular role that they were called to have. So we actually have a photo, a photo, a drawing, an image, a picture that I'm going to show here on the screen of someone being anointed. This wasn't the actual moment David was anointed, but it would have looked somewhat like this. Like if you've ever seen the Old Testament scriptures, what you'll see is that someone is anointed into being a prophet or a priest or a king. And when the Old Testament uses the word anointed, it means this, that they would literally pour oil upon someone's head. And it was a symbolic gesture of saying that this individual has been called into a particular role that God has. This word anointed has gotten kind of weird in in recent years and and somewhat through kind of more charismatic movements. It's just kind of become like a word we use to say that was special. So if you've ever heard someone say like, that preacher was anointed. I've had people walk up to me after a church service and say, you were just anointed today. Or sometimes a worship set will go off and people will do, I was just anointed and I think they're probably right. It just probably doesn't mean what they think it means. See, anointed doesn't mean special. Anointing doesn't mean that this is just like a randomly good thing that happened. Anointing was this very particular thing that happened in the Old Testament. It was to pour oil upon someone's head. And here's what Jesus was declaring by reading Isaiah chapter 61, verse one. Jesus was declaring this, that Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. The word Messiah The word Messiah literally means the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who is particularly used by God for this reason. When we call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, we are saying that Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus, in claiming Isaiah 61, says, I'm anointed. But then here's what I need you to hear tonight. This is true for every one of you who calls yourself a Christian this evening, that when we come to Jesus, we become anointed by the Holy Spirit. This is what happens to every single one of you. When you come to Jesus, you are anointed by the Holy Spirit. So listen, anointed isn't something that like some of us have, but others of us don't. Anointing is what happens to every single one of us when we come to Christ. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon us, the Holy Spirit lives in our bones, and because of that, we have been anointed. 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 20 says this You have been anointed by the Holy One. Okay, so let's just get this clear. Every single one of you who is a follower of Christ who has been born again, you are anointed. You have been chosen. You have been selected by God for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within you. And just as Jesus says, the Lord has anointed me for something, you in having the spirit of Christ inside of you have been anointed as well. And here's what that means. I wanna give you three things that means for you. Number one, anointed people have authority. Jesus is anointed. He is chosen. God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is given authority. Anointed people have power. Like in other words, to be anointed as a king or a prophet or a priest in the ancient world was to declare that you not only have authority to do things, but you have the power in which to pull that off. And finally, anointed people have responsibility. They have obligation. Anointed people have power and authority and obligation. And child of God, here's what I need you to know tonight. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your life has been like, the moment you come to Jesus, you are given through his Holy Spirit, authority, power, and obligation, meaning that the God of the universe dwells within you and gives you authority, authority to speak the words that God has given us in the scriptures, authority to walk in the confidence that God has given you, a power to live out the Christian life. Like, listen, the Christian life is not try your best to do your best. Like the Christian life is the Holy Spirit of God gives you the ability to walk with Jesus. And finally, you have been given obligation Like you have an obligation to live out the kind of calling that Christ has put on your life. You've been given authority and power and obligation. Listen, I just want to make this clear tonight. You've been anointed, not someone else, not preachers or pastors or worship leaders or stage personalities. All of us have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then here's the question I want to ask is this one. What does our anointing give us the authority, the power, and the obligation to do? And I want to try to answer that, not with some clever thing I came up with, but I want to show you what it actually says here in the text. So look at verse one. It says, he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. Then it says this, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from the darkness, the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. Listen, you have been anointed. You have been given power and authority and obligation. God has not just saved you so you can go to heaven someday. He has anointed you. He's given you a role, a purpose, a task. He said you have something on this earth to do. And what is that something you've been given to do? It's right here. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Child of God, do you know that your job is to be a binder up, someone who helps heal those who are brokenhearted? Do you have someone in your family, one of your roommates right now, someone at your work, someone at your school who's hurting, who's brokenhearted right now? Do you know that it is not someone else's job to bind them up, to help them pull their life back together? It is your job. It is your anointing. It is your calling. Your job is to look at the hurting people, not somewhere vaguely in this world, but the hurting people in your family. When your sister or your mom or your best friend or your colleague or the person across the hall from you is hurting, your job is to bind up their wounds, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Like like child of God, do you know that your anointing, the power and the authority and the obligation God has given you is that you get to be the one who proclaims hope when everyone else says it's hopeless? You get to speak to the person who is addicted to alcohol or porn or drugs and say it doesn't have to be that way anymore. Like you get to offer that kind of freedom. You do not have to give in to the cynicism and negativity that pervades our world. Your job is to proclaim hope and freedom from the darkness for those who are in prison. It says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Like you have a job and that is to proclaim the good news of the gospel And the good news of the gospel is both of the things that just got names. It is the favor of our God, but also the vengeance of our God. Like, I need you to know that the gospel message is good news and it's bad news. And if you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, here it is simply. The bad news is that you are a sinner before a holy God. There's nothing you can do to earn your way, make it up to God. There's nothing you can do to make it better on your own. You have rebelled against the king of the universe. And in every culture that has ever lived, the only penalty for rebellion is death. And yet the good news of the gospel, the favor of God, is that God sends Jesus into the world to die for your sins so that you might have a right relationship with him. He wants to forgive and pardon your rebellion, your act of turning your back to God and walking away. That's this vengeance and comfort. That's this favor and vengeance of our God. And you have been anointed. You've been called. You've been given the power and authority to proclaim that to a watching world. says to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in zion so once again we should be this comforting presence that's a question for you like are you this person who's like a comforting presence in your life are you this agitating irritating frustrating presence in people's lives do you provide comfort when you walk in the house to your family of origin that drives some of you insane are you the type of person when you walk in things get more calm or do you stir up drama Do you stir up anger? When you walk with people and talk with people, are you just someone who can kind of help them grieve and help them walk through the hardest things of life? And then I love how it ends. It says to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So so in other words, we as the children of God, our job is to be the type of people who bring the best out of worst situations who don't try to look for all the worst things going on in the world, but rather draw beauty from ashes, draw beauty from mourning instead of a garment, or praise instead of a spirit of despair. Like, do you know that part of your role, part of your anointing, part of the call of God on your life is to be the type of individual who looks for the goodness of God everywhere you go? This is the anointing God has put upon you. Here's the question I want to ask, and I'm just noticing right now, this slide got all sorts of messed up and it's, not my, it's, it's my fault, I should have checked it, but I, I, I built it really badly. There's a little question in yellow there. Have you accepted or abandoned your anointing? Like, have you accepted or abandoned the anointing of God put on your life? Or have you just kind of ignored the fact that God has called you into something beautiful and wonderful in this world? Have you accepted the fact that the spirit of God lives in you and you have power and obligation and authority in this world? Or have you abandoned that anointing? It goes on this way and we'll read it here uh, in the back half of verse three. It says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So it goes on again to describe the type of mission Jesus wanted to have and the type of mission we should have. And it gives this metaphor, this image that should be familiar to all of us who live in this community. And that is as oaks of righteousness. And so the idea of an oak of righteousness is this, this tree that plants itself. Its roots go deep and it grows and it gives shade to everything around it. And obviously we live right next to the city. I live in the city of thousand oaks. This is a big thing all around us. Everywhere you drive, you will see oak trees. And here's the call of God on your life. Here's what he has anointed you to do, to be this oak of righteousness who plants yourself somewhere and in planting yourself somewhere flourishes in such a way that blesses those who are around you. And here's what I want to talk about for a moment with respect to being an oak of righteousness. Um, Here's the thing I want to point out about oak trees. It's pretty simple. Um, Oak trees don't really do much, right? They just kind of sit there. They do one thing, they plant themselves in the ground and then they grow up. But the one thing you'll notice about oak trees is different than any other kind of animal. When you think about a tree, this is this living being, it's this thriving being, but they don't go anywhere, right? You don't like dig it up and put it in a new place. Of course, in Thousand Oaks, you're not allowed to dig up oak trees, but you get the point. Like you don't go anywhere, you just plant yourself in one place. And I wanna talk to you about that tonight. And I wanna talk specifically to this room about this, because I think this image of this oak tree that plants itself in one place and flourishes where it is and blesses those around it is an image that some of us need to cling on to. So here's what I'm convinced of. Um, I think sometimes, sometimes faith looks like obeying the call to go. And some of you have done that in your life. God said, go move to this city or go do this program or go to this college or take this job. And sometimes faith, like in the Old Testament, when Abram is called to go into a new place, faith looks like taking that bold, courageous step to go somewhere new. But let me say this to some of you tonight, because I think some of you need to hear this and I don't know who, but I've just been praying about it and I feel like the spirit has this for someone tonight. Other times, faith looks looks like obeying the call to stay, to stay right where you are, And I don't know who I'm speaking to. I have no agenda. No one's like written me an email about this. But I just want to say to someone here that it is possible that the God of the universe is calling you to show extraordinary faith, not by picking up and moving to a new city or a new job or a new boyfriend or a new place or a new school or a new anything, but that God has given you the call to show your faith by staying, by staying planted in one place. See, this is what it looks like to be an oak of righteousness. I believe sometimes God calls us to go. Sometimes a new season, a new town, a new job, a new school, a new thing is a beautiful thing. But here's my concern for this room. My concern for this room is that we are a room filled with people, a generation filled with people who are constantly trying to go to a new place and do a new thing, who never want to stay in one place for too long, who always want to pick up and go experience a new town, a new city, a new job, a new set of friends, a new place to live, and you do not plant yourself in one place. And I want to call someone tonight to show their faith in God, not by going somewhere new, but by planting yourself in one place, by choosing to plant yourself with one friend group, with one small group, by choosing to plant yourself in one church, by staying at a job for long enough to actually make a difference in the lives of people around you. I've witnessed this in my own life. Listen, I've lived in this city, and this town for 12 years. I never knew about Thousand Oaks. I'd never heard of Westlake Village growing up, but I ended up here and I've just planted myself here. I planted myself in a city. I planted myself in a church. I planted myself in a small group. I got married in 2013. I've stayed married to the same woman. Okay, stayed planted there, right? Praise the Lord, right? Um, and, And then like literally that summer, March, we get married in summer of 2013, we joined a small group. And here we are, we're in the same small group. We've just planted ourselves there. It's almost 10 years now. We're coming up on nine years, 10 years of us just being in this place. Like we're just planted in this group, right? And and that's what God has called us to do. So again, God may be calling you to go somewhere great, but I just wanna challenge someone that you might have to learn the art, the faith of staying planted in one place. And for some of you, if you're gonna do that, you need to understand what that kind of commitment is going to mean. So let me just give this to you. It's real simple. Four things you have to embrace to grow where you're planted. And again, I just believe God has called some of you to plant yourself in a church, in a small group, in a company, in an organization, in a place to actually just say, this is my home. This is where I'm gonna flourish. I'm going to be planted here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to have the faith to say four things you're gonna need. Number one, you're going to have to embrace imperfection. You're gonna have to embrace imperfection. If you wanna just choose to stay planted in one place, you're going to have to recognize that you live in an imperfect place. Can I talk about the Conejo Valley for a second? The Conejo Valley is an imperfect place and not for the reasons you think. You think it's imperfect because it's boring. I have three children. I love that it's boring, okay? You think it's imperfect because everything closes by nine and I'm usually in bed by nine, but it's imperfect, right? And yet at some point, you're going to have to recognize that this is an imperfect place and you're gonna be like, ah, this is so boring. I'm moving to LA. That's perfect, right? No. Or you're like, California is so expensive. I'm moving somewhere else, right? And then you move there and you find imperfection there too. Listen, if you're gonna stay in one place, you just gotta learn to embrace imperfection. If you're going to stay in a friendship with someone for a long time, you know what you're going to have to embrace? Imperfection. You ever had a perfect friend? Like me neither, right? Like like, like you ever had a perfect girlfriend or boyfriend? I don't have a perfect spouse. Like, like I know as a pastor, I'm supposed to be like, my wife is perfect. She's basically God. She's not, right? And she, if she were up here, she would tell you that more. She'd be like, no, I'm not. Like my spouse isn't perfect, but he stay. Why? Not because she's perfect, but because you committed to growing and flourishing in one place. And then just, can you hear me on this? If you're gonna stay in one place and actually flourish spiritually, you're gonna have to accept imperfect churches because that's the only kind of church there is. And so if you're just kind of like, no, I want the perfect church with the perfect worship and the perfect pastor where everyone's nice and no one ever sins and everything's good, you're looking for the church in heaven and you won't get there till you die, okay? That's all you got. You embrace an imperfect church and an imperfect people. And I just wanna call someone to embrace the imperfection of Calvary. We know we're not perfect. Come help us fix it right? Come help us make it better. You embrace imperfection. Number two, if you want to stay where you're planted, you got to embrace limitations. Limitations. Some of you have this thing where you're like, I've got to go to every movie and see everything and watch every documentary and go to every country. And I've got to try everything and every kind of food. And you just want your whole life to be variety and you doing everything. But the great tragedy of the world is you can't do everything. You can't go everywhere. And part of you flourishing where God has planted you is you just accepting that you're not gonna get to see everywhere, do everything, meet everyone in the world, and yet there is a beauty in flourishing where you are. From time to time, I hear people say like, if I was rich, all I would do is travel 100% of the time. And I'm sure some of you think that too. Like that's the real life out there. You just wandering the world with a backpack, seeing things and snapping photos, right? But let me tell you, that's not actually the joy of life. Because you alone traveling the world might sound cool, but the actual adventure is people. And it's people you get to know and love. And that's limitations. It's learning to accept I'm not going to get to go everywhere. My time is limited. And the way I can embrace the imperfection and the way I can embrace limitations is to know that there is coming a day where Jesus Christ will raise me in glory and I'll have 100 million years to go explore the world. And then there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Like that's glory, that's eternity. Why can't I plant myself in the booming metropolis of thousand oaks? It's because I know I've got all of eternity to explore God's creation and it's okay. I'm gonna embrace imperfection. I'm gonna embrace limitations. Number three, I need you to hear me on this. If you want to bloom where you're planted, you need to embrace suffering. And here's what some of you have done. Some of you don't stay places long enough to get hurt. So you stay in relationships with a guy just long enough and then you sense he might have actually enough trust with you to hurt you and so you bail on the relationship. You stay at a job just long enough until you sense that you might actually be let down by your boss. So you jump from job to job or guy to guy or God help us from church to church because once someone gets to know you here at this church, they might actually let you down and wound you. So you pop from church to church to church to church and you've been to like 14 churches and none of them are good enough for you. And so you keep doing this rather than saying, you know what, I'm gonna stick around long enough to get hurt. I'm gonna be vulnerable enough for someone to wound me. Because if you want to actually flourish in this world, you have got to embrace suffering, not run from it. And it doesn't mean you intentionally put yourself in harm's way, just like, someone please hurt me. It means that you stick around long enough for someone to let you down. At a job, at a school, in a small group, in a relationship, if you want to actually experience long-term, satisfying love in a marriage relationship, you're going to have to open yourself up enough for someone to wound you. It's going to have to happen. If you want to grow where you're planted, you're going to have to embrace suffering. And then finally, this is the one that goes with it, the fourth and final, you're going to have to embrace forgiveness. Like if you want to stay with someone long enough to flourish, you're going to have to learn to forgive him, to forgive her. If you want to stay at a church long enough to actually flourish spiritually, you're going to have to learn to forgive pastors and leaders and small group leaders and friends and people in that church. If you want to stay at a company, a business, some kind of organization you work at long enough, you're going to have to learn to forgive. See, what does Isaiah tell us to be? These oaks of righteousness, you just plant ourselves in this place and we flourish and grow and we bless all of those around us. And here's what I need someone to hear tonight that the longer you stay, the deeper the impact. The longer you stay, the deeper the impact. It is a ministry of presence that God has you for, where he just says, be there. Be this consistent witness and presence in your neighborhood, in your church, at your school, at your business, in this relationship, in this small group, and God will multiply the effect of you staying. Here's how it goes on in verse four. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I want you to look up here and see the verbs that we are rebuilding, we are restoring, we are renewing. And here's just something you can take to the bank that you will know you are fulfilling your purpose when you are building people up. You will know you are fulfilling the anointing that God has put on your life when you are building other people up. Notice again what it's saying. They're rebuilding ruins. They're restoring what was broken. They're renewing. It is a process of healing and building. It doesn't say they go to the ancient ruins and tear them down or they go to the places long devastated and just bulldoze over them. You will know you are fulfilling your purpose when you are building people up. And I just want you to hear this so clearly. Um, This runs against everything our world and our culture says right now. Because our world and our culture says the way you fulfill your purpose is by tearing down, by criticizing, by being angry, by pointing out flaws. And here's what I'm convicted that someone in this room needs to hear. Because we just live in this generation where you have more information before you than anyone ever has before. You know about some controversy going on in some city that you'll never go to when 100 years ago, you would have never heard of that city nor the controversy going on there. And so what happens is we just become these critics who lean back and we look at the world and we just criticize everything. But here's what I've learned, and I hope you've learned this too, that it is easy to critique, but it's hard to construct. Like it's real easy to have some criticisms of someone else, but it's actually hard to construct something meaningful in this world. I've learned it's easy to problematize, but it's hard to produce It's easy to point out that that's a problem, and that's really a problem, and someone should really fix that. And I can't believe that's been going on, and I can't believe she said that, and I can't believe he said that, and I can't believe that person's on television, and I can't believe we put them in office, and I can't believe this happened. It's easy to problematize. You know what's hard to do? It's produce. I've learned that it's easy to break, but it's hard to build. And here's what I want to say in all three of these statements. I think it is easy to be the type of young person who sits around cynically looking at the world, talking about how awful it is. I think it is easy to be 19 years old and sit in your dorm room and just complain about everything all the time. I think that takes zero risk, zero talent, zero authority, zero power, zero anointing. If somehow you have been convinced that your life's purpose is fulfilled by you just constantly putting out all of the problems in this world, if you have been convinced of that, I think you have missed something sincerely. Like, listen, it's easy to critique the education system, to be all mad about schools and your experience of school and what you see in schools all around the world. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You know it's hard to do? Go be a teacher. Go start a school. Go educate a child. Better yet, go disciple someone and learn that it's actually not easy and it's easy to critique and it's easy to be mad about the education system and it's hard to actually do something about it. You know it's easy to do? It's easy to look around at parents and be mad at them. It's easy to judge parents nowadays. It's easy to go to a restaurant and see a parent who's sitting at a booth in a restaurant who's put in front of their, 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 their kid an iPhone with Coco Melon on it and they're showing a little show. And you're like, as a parent, I would never allow my child to watch television in a booth. And I once thought that and then I had kids, okay? <laughs> and listen, it's easy to criticize families and parents. You know what's hard? Go raise kids. Go get married and raise some kids. Try that one out. It's easy to critique parents, it's hard to actually raise up little human beings. You know, it's easy to do to criticize rich people. Yeah. Isn't that fun? Isn't it fun to just look at how someone else spent their money and be like, well, that's not right at all. But then the worst is to realize that globally and historically, you are in the top 1% of human beings who have ever lived. So you know what's hard? To actually do something meaningful with your money. To actually not just be the person who critiques, but does something meaningful. And then finally, um, do you know what the easiest thing in the world to do is? Criticize the church. You got criticisms of Calvary Community Church? Come talk to me. I'll beat you 100 to 1 on those, Okay. I know everything wrong with this place. I not know every I know every little door that's like squeaky. I know every little person that's like, ooh. You know, like I know everything here at this church. I know every problem. And it is so easy to criticize the church. You know what's hard? Come lead a small group for us. You know what's hard? Come help build this place. You know what's easy is to sit around with like, this should happen this way. You know what's hard? Pour your life into something and say, I'm gonna be a part of this. I'm gonna invest in it imperfectly. Listen, it's so easy to be this young, critical, cynical person who just points out problems in the world. And you know why it's so easy? Because there are problems in the world. There are injustices, there are problems, there are systems of oppression, there are individuals who are terrible, there are individuals who just make mistakes. But here's what I want you to know. Your capacity to identify problems in the world does not make your life meaningful. That doesn't make you cool, it doesn't make you interesting, it doesn't make you impactful, And your anointing is not to do this. Listen, your willingness to offer imperfect solutions to problems is what makes your life meaningful. Your willingness to say, God, you have anointed me and I'm gonna try and I'm gonna do something. I'm not just gonna be the cynical young person who always has something negative and critical and mean to say about the world. I'm gonna do something. That's what God has called you into. See, here's how we're gonna close tonight. Verses five and six say this. It says, strangers will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you, you will be called priests of our Lord and you will be named ministers of our God. Priests of our Lord, ministers of our God. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm, this is the end. <laughs> Every time I say something like that, you people laugh, and you think that's very funny. And one day it's gonna happen. Um, so so um, here's the danger of this verse. Um, over 2,600 years since this verse was written, Um, The danger is that there are certain people who actually started putting the title priest on their business card or, or being called ministers in public. And so the great danger is that you see this and you hear this whole thing. And I've said the whole night, every believer here is anointed. Every believer who has the Holy Spirit has a mission. You have purpose. You have authority. You have something God has called you to do. And the danger is to go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now this is talking about priests and ministers, those people who are paid full-time by the church or wear a little white collar or, or somehow work as a pastor, whatever that means right? And so it's easy to kind of pass this off, but here's what I want to remind us of. So um, years ago, I was hanging out um, at at a uh, ordination that was happening here at this church, and it was for a friend of mine named Drew Sams. Drew Sams was a pastor here for many years. He got ordained here at the church, and at the ordination ceremony, the guy who was doing the ceremony gets up, and he puts his notes on the lectern, and he begins by saying this. He's talking to a crowd of probably two, 300 people. He goes, okay, I want to begin today uh, by asking those who are ministers uh, to please stand up, And two, 300 people are there, maybe like 50, 60 people from all different churches that had come in, stood to their feet proudly. And at the time I was an intern. So I was like, intern, is that minister or just like nothing? Like, what does that mean? So I didn't know if I should stand or not. So I stayed seated and I was like, oh, look at the like actual ministers who have made it. And then he says, all right, well, hold on, sit back down. I wanna ask the question again that those who are ministers would stand up. And then he says these words. He says this, every single one of you, let me remind you, every single one of you became a minister the moment you were baptized. Now would those of you who are ministers stand up and the whole room was like, "All right, you got us, right? And we're all on our feet. And this is true. Every single one of you became a minister the moment you were baptized. And certain people, maybe like myself and Drew Sams, we were called in those moments to administer the ministry of the church. But the ministers aren't the people on stage, it's not the people on staff, it's not the people who get paid to do this. Everyone here is a minister. Were you baptized? You are a minister. That's what God has called you toward. The ministers aren't someone else in this world. You are the minister. Your job is to figure this out. Say, okay, I am a minister. Listen, you are a minister. And then here's what I just wanna say to everyone in this room. You have a unique ministry. And here's why this is so important. Um, Again, I say that you're a minister and you go, well, I could never stand up on stage and preach a 45 minute sermon where I just yell at a room of people like you do, Brian. And here's what I wanna say. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because we don't need more Brian Howards in this world, right? My wife would tell you that over and over, right? But we do not need more Brian. You, we don't need someone else to come do this. That's my job. What we need is for you to go into your family that I will never meet and be a ministry of presence and oak of righteousness in your home. That's what's needed. What's needed is for you to go into your school where you are a student and you are there every single day, every single week and to go minister on your campus. What is needed is for you to go into your business, your company, your organization and be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ in the midst of everything that is going on there. You have a unique ministry. God has given you a unique ministry. We don't need you to be a worship leader or an onstage person or even a small group leader for you to have a ministry. You don't even need to call yourself a leader to have a ministry. God has given you a unique ministry. And you know what the tragedy is? Some people never take the time to figure out what it is. And maybe that's you. And I don't mean that to be like a guilt trip. I just mean that to be this like cool thing. Like God has given you this ministry and your job in life is to be like, wait, 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 wait. Who do I see every day? Who do I interact with? Who do I have a unique influence upon? Who do I seem to like help and like they listen to me? I can be a minister to that people. What an awesome opportunity. Like if you don't leave this room tonight thinking like, what's my unique ministry? You've missed like the whole point of the sermon. God has anointed you. The Holy Spirit of God is on you. And your job is to figure out what that unique ministry is. And then hear me on this because God has fully equipped and anointed you for that ministry. Like, you might feel overwhelmed by that ministry, and if you're like, hmm, that seems a little scary, it might be a little too much for me, you're in the exact right spot for ministry. Because if there actually is a Holy Spirit of God living inside of your bones, he's never going to call you to something small. He's going to call you something something outstanding. Or you can just step into the role that God has given you. Listen, like some of you work in a space where you're like, there's like no Christians here. It's just me. It's super overwhelming. I'm the only one who even knows Jesus's name except a curse word version of it. Like I'm the only one. And here's what I say. God has fully equipped and anointed you for that ministry. Like every single one of you has been called into a unique ministry. God has equipped and anointed you for that ministry. And the words I want to leave you with are simply this. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Do it. Do exactly the ministry God has given to you. Don't fulfill my ministry. No one else needs to fulfill my ministry. That's me. This is my job. No one else needs to fulfill Jacob Wood's ministry. That's his job. No one else needs to fulfill Brian or Sarah or anyone else's ministry. You fulfill your ministry. Don't try to be anyone else. Don't try to act like anyone else. Don't try to fulfill someone else's call. Fulfill the call God has put on your life. Fulfill your ministry. Our band's gonna make their way up and we're gonna have an opportunity to close and sing as we always do. Uh, and I just wanna encourage you tonight to remember that the spirit of the living God has anointed you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in your bones. He has made you for a purpose and on purpose, and he has a ministry for you. He has called you to be an oak of righteousness, to plant yourself into one place and to be the type of person who binds up wounds, proclaims good news, brings good out of the world. Not to be this cynical, angry, bitter person who's always mad and criticizing the world, but rather to be a minister of our God who says, I have a ministry. I've been anointed and equipped to that. And God, I want to fulfill that ministry. So let me pray for you. And then we're going to sing. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks once again that you've anointed those of us in this room. God, those of us who know Jesus, like you live inside of us. And so God, I just want to pray for anyone here tonight who's just not sure they have a ministry, not even sure what that looks like or means. God, would you just make that abundantly clear to them? Would you help them see the ways in which they can minister and serve and bless their community, their family, their friends, the people around them? And then Father, all week, your spirit's just been telling me just someone who needs to hear that they're supposed to stay planted. I just pray someone would have the faith not to run away, not to run away from that thing that you've called them to stay faithful to and stay planted in. And God, I don't know who that is. I just ask that they would have the faith to say yes to you tonight. God, may you move in their hearts and power by the power of your spirit. So God, as we worship and as we praise King Jesus, may we know that he is the anointed one. And because of his anointing, we stand in his spirit to his praise. For his glory and all God's people said.